It's a great personal pleasure to welcome uh, Nick Draper to the seminar uh, this evening. Nick is the director of the UCL Center for the Study of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership. He's the author of an award-winning book, The Price of Emancipation, which was published in 2010, uh, and in fact, several other important publications. Uh, his presentation today is entitled The Structure and Significance of British Caribbean Slave Ownership from <coughs> 1763 to 1833. And I'll just remind you of our procedures, which is that Nick will give his presentation. There'll be plenty of time for questions, and I hope that you will join us for a drink after the seminar. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to Kate and Steve Cushion and the other organizers, and thank you to each of you for giving up your evening or part of your evening uh, for this. I'm glad to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. I'm going to talk about the current state of play, the state of work uh, of uh, LBS, the Long-Running Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, uh, at UCL across across the square. As um, some of you know already, it's a team project. It's always been conceived as a collective effort, and that is what it remains. So although I'm going to be using the first person singular um, and the first person plural, uh, each of those have particular meanings in the context of, of what I'm doing. It's not the royal we, in other words. As some of you also know, the project LBS has been conceived and presented essentially as a British history project, a project in British history. It's certainly been staffed by British historians, and it's been concerned above all, uh, up to now, at least with colonial slavery's reach into British metropolitan society. <clears throat> but I want tonight, given the context of the seminar and, and in part the audience of Caribbeanists, also to explore how, if at all, our work can be helpful or relevant to historians and specialists in the Caribbean. Uh, it's presumptuous of me to tell you why or how our work matters or should matter to you, um, but I aim to tell you enough about the project that you can draw your own conclusions as to whether this is something that has value as a potential resource. So I hope that some of you might find ways uh, in which it can be helpful in your own work. I'm going to talk about five or six areas that seem to me to be kind of obvious areas of, of extension or of, of exploitation, more accurately, of what we have. I also want to stress some of the limitations of our work. Uh, I won't pick up on all of them, I'm sure, uh, from your perspective, but we are conscious of, of some of the limitations of it as well. So it's a uh, tour d'horizon rather than a uh, focused paper on a, on a specific topic. I should also stress that all our results are on the LBS website. Um, everything that we have is posted there. It changes each day as a result, and that makes it currently not a tremendously satisfactory resource for people. We understand that. Uh, but we're still developing the data. We will freeze it at some point in the next six to nine months um, because users need to have a stable basis rather than, than re produce different results from consecutive searches on, on two separate days. So we will freeze it, and then we'll do a more orderly job of issuing updates over the coming years. Um, so it changes from day to day. We're interested in the ways in which it's used, is being used or could be used, and particularly the ways it could be used better by people. In other words, what we can do to improve its uh, serviceability. And that's one reason for talking to you, for, uh, to you tonight as well. Many of you perhaps already know the broad outline of the project, uh, but for those who don't, let me just summarize very quickly. The project overall aims to identify who owned enslaved people in the British colonies of the Caribbean between 1763 and 1833, uh, and the importance of those people in the formation of metropolitan British society, economy, and culture. That's the, the label. There have been two phases to it. Uh, to date, the first, 2009-2012, uh, 
was based on the records of the Commissioners for Slave Compensation, the extraordinary records of the Commissioners for Slave Compensation. Uh, this was the body set up to distribute the £20 million paid by the British state to the slave owners at the end of slavery. Uh, as you know, the 750,000 enslaved people received nothing. Uh, the, instead, they had to work for four, further four, originally intended to be six for field labourers, um, years of unpaid labour of 45 hours per week. The £20 million was never intended to be full compensation to the slave owners. Uh, the conception was the £20 million was somewhere of the order of 40 to 45% of the value of the enslaved people. The uh, free labour, the continued ex and coerced labour under apprenticeship was construed to be another third or so, at least that's the numbers that, that I come to. Fogel and Engerman have worked out higher numbers than those, but I think they're, they're too high. Uh, so there's a residual. The slave owners themselves paid 20 to 25% of the, the price of emancipation. Um, the corollary, of course, is that the British taxpayer, I, in the end, the British consumer, because taxes were consumption taxes, paid 40 to 45%. The enslaved people themselves paid a third, and, as I say, the residual was picked up by the slave owners. And the money, the £20 million, was distributed within um, a period of three years, effectively between 1835 and 1837, to 45,000 slave owners around the world. Uh, it included not only the Caribbean, but Mauritius, the Cape of Good Hope. An extraordinary bureaucratic achievement. Um, permitted in part, of course, because people wanted the money. Okay, there was no shortage of people coming forward. It wasn't as though the slave conditions had to go and find them. Um, they came forward in large numbers, rather larger numbers than those who were actually entitled to the money, of course. Um, and this process left meticulous records at Kew. Um, uh, um, in the first phase of the project, what we did was to digitize those records uh, and uh, make them available on the website. And then we researched thousands of individual slave owners, but focused on those who lived uh, in Britain those who lived in Britain, either at the time of compensation or uh, very shortly afterwards we could recognise that they were in Britain or back in Britain. However, we recorded all of the entries. Okay? So the, the totality of the compensation records, the bare bones of those claims are all in the database. Uh, and it includes uh, Cape Good Hope and, and Mauritius um, and the Caribbean. And for those bare entries where we haven't done the work, it is, the information is skeletal. It's the name of the person, it's the claim, uh, the size of the claim, the, the um, uh, scale of the, enslaved, the, the, the ownership of enslaved people, it's the estate where that's known and recorded, and it's the capacity in which the owner claimed, where we know it. Were they owners, straightforward enough, or were they other forms of claimant? And that's one of the things, of course, about the compensation records, is that it brings to the surface, for the first time in a systematic way, all of those people who had mortgages over enslaved people, who were creditors of estates that were secured creditors on the estates, they were legatees, people who had been left money secured on the estates maybe 10, 15, 20 years uh, previously. They were annuitants, um, in other words, uh, dependents, often but not exclusively women, who were drawing an income from the estates and from the enslaved people. Uh, those uh, annuitant, annuities had been left to them uh, by generally by males, not exclusively again, but generally by males, um, fathers, uh, husbands. And those annuitants represent a claim also on the, enslaved, on the compensation for the enslaved people. Uh, and then the commission had to arbitrate between the various claimants, the owners, the, the creditors, and so on. So that was um, phase one. It represented a bounded universe of sources. The records at Kew are copious, they're extensive. In the end, we read most of them, but it was a single archive. In the second phase, uh, which has been running from 2013 to pr the present, 
what we've been attempting to do was to reconstruct the ownership of enslaved people in the British colonies from 1763 to 1833. So we've moved from a single point of time, 1st of August 1834, which was the record date for the compensation, to a, a dynamic um, diachronic development of uh, the ownership of enslaved people. And the question for us has been, how did we get to 1833? How did that structure emerge historically? And the periodization we have, 1763, is obviously intended to capture the expansion of the British um, slave empire through the accession at that point of colonies seized from from the French, um, St. Vincent, Dominica, Grenada, and Tobago, um, identified either as ceded or neutral islands. Of course, our periodization also picks up the last and final wave of expansion of the British slave empire, the addition critically of British Guiana, very importantly, uh, Trinidad, St. Lucia, uh, out of the Napoleonic and uh, wars against Napoleonic and revolutionary France. We've attempted in this second phase to record ownership of every unit of 15 or more enslaved people. That's been the cutoff. In other words, we haven't gone to record every uh, owner of enslaved people, but to have some materiality threshold and we set it, in the end, arbitrarily at 15 people. Uh, and some of those, or many of those, units of 15 people represent estates, land and people, but many others represent significant businesses in urban environments in, in the Caribbean, um, entrepreneurial environments. Uh, in Honduras, it's, it's logging of mahogany, um, but in Kingston, it could be shipbuilding or, or as I say, artisanal uh, uh, endeavors by the enslaved people. Um, orchestrated by, by owners. We've used the same methodology between phase one and phase two. Individuals, the focus, creating a prosopography, this mass biography. But in, in phase two, we've added a second dimension, a second unit of, of analysis, which is the estate. Okay, so we have people and we have estates. Um, and in the end, every entry is, is uh, intended to be at the, the junction of those two things. The idea was to develop continuous histories starting in 1833-1834 and working backwards through the slave registers, these triennial censuses that exist between 1817, uh, largely 1832, and then back into the 18th century. That was the program. And a number of commentators at the time warned us that this was not a feasible piece of work, certainly not in the time we allotted all the resources that we allotted to it. And, of course, they were completely uh, correct. They were completely correct. Um, as we go back beyond 1817, there's an explosive fragmentation of sources, and any of you who worked on, on this period know that, that suddenly, instead of, and we knew this would happen, but we just underestimated the scale, that instead of dealing with, in the end, as I say, a relatively finite series of, of resources, then we're looking at fragments in many, many places, individual family um, histories, secondary material, fragments, listed lists of enslaved people that, that appear uh, at various points, uh, in the records, and we're trying to do this for each colony in the Caribbean. So we understand that we're still doing work that we committed to have finished um, some time ago. And there is effectively no end to the work, again, as you've recognized. Given the numbers of people, we have tens of thousands of people. We have um, 10,000 units of ownership now, estates, um, and there is always more to do. So uh, at some point, we will need, as I said, to freeze the database and just recognize that we have got as far as we can. What we've done systematically is to use and record information from the slave registers for each colony and from what are called the accounts produce in Jamaica. And uh, those are obviously limited in geography for Jamaica uh, and limited by time for, for each of the colonies. But we can make the same claim for completeness 
uh, that we make for the compensation record. In other words, we have been through the accounts produce, we have been through the slave registers, and we have winnowed them for ownership information. And that's an important qualification. Those are incredibly rich sources. The slave registers I'll come back to at the end. They're incredibly rich sources um, relative to anything else that exists for the enslaved people, um, and we've only <coughs> gone into them to extract systematically the information about who owned the people and the estate that's being described. Uh, so it's a, a particular um, slice, and we understand that. Um, but as I say, we are making claims for completeness, or we will make claims for completeness, um, as far as ownership is concerned, as it's reflected. Elsewhere, as I say, we're building from fragmentary material uh, a huge body of data. So tonight, any remarks I make are preliminary in two senses. Firstly, the data will never be complete. And secondly, we haven't analyzed what we do have yet. So uh, we're still in process. When we do turn to that analysis, it will be, again, focused primarily on Britain from our point of view. And next year is the year in which we will gauge what we have. So what of its relevance for, for the Caribbean, for Caribbean history, for Caribbeanists, what can it potentially offer? In thinking about this, I came to one overarching thing, and then, as I said, five or six specific areas. And the first overriding thing is that what we're doing, again, it's a, it reproduces the emphasis on Britain, but we're documenting the importance of the Caribbean to Britain in the period of slavery. That's what the project is. Um, and in a way, it's no small thing, perhaps, to, to engage with and demonstrate the contribution of the Caribbean to British modernity. But that, as I say, that's what we're, we're doing. In this light, our project is straight Eric Williams, absolutely straightforward uh, repetition or re replication of what Williams was doing and thinking. He was one man with limited resources, where more people with more resources, not unlimited, but with many more resources, and of course we have access to um, um, data that was beyond Williams. So Wes Williams was using examples, exemplary case studies um, in, his, in his work. He'd have half a dozen examples, usually for most of the key points he was making. And those examples have lived on, by the way. You'll see they're picked up endlessly in the secondary and tertiary literature. Um, it, it's always the same things that are being, I say, trotted out. Um, we have hundreds of legacies now, um, hundreds of legacies in what uh, we've organized as, as six legacy strands. One is commercial, the business, the firms. We've got, I think, over 500 firms that we know were extant then, not extant necessarily now, uh, but were engaged in, in slave ownership, lending money against enslaved people, uh, shipping the produce from, from um, uh, the slave economy, and in that process becoming sufficiently close to it that they've triggered some form of ownership. Okay, they've foreclosed on mortgages uh, or uh, they've lent money um, uh, secured on the enslaved people. Um, being repaid from that. So commercial, physical, in other words, in, in Britain, what has been built by slave owners or by people whose money is recognizably slave-owning money. The culture and philanthropic, what were the, good, the, the causes to which uh, slave owners put their money in building uh, Britain in a period, obviously, of urban renaissance and development, not only in Liverpool, but in London, in Bath. Um, Leamington Spa was built, conceived and built primarily by a, a slave owner. Um, the imperial legacies, one of the theses we had was that as the fun went out of being a slave owner, if I can put it that way, with emancipation, slave-owning families moved their resources, their human and financial capital, into the white settler colonies. And so we can see that in Australia particularly, but also in New Zealand and Canada and in the Cape, West Indian families, families who were slave owners, have redenominated themselves and become players in the white settler colonies. Um, 
Political legacies, in other words, what were the uh, slave owners doing in Britain? And again, we follow Williams's trajectory of um, significant um, force and then diminishing force into particularly the post-1832 period by definition. And then finally, and most importantly, perhaps amongst the strands, is what uh, we've labelled historical. And this is the, way, the ways of thinking about race that slavery generated amongst the slave owners. Um, and Catherine Hall, predictably, has, has worked uh, primarily on this strand. And what her work and the collective endeavor shows is the concentration of slave owners who, after 1833, 1834, begin to rewrite the history of slavery and the history of abolition and emancipation. And so they rewrite it so successfully, but by the 1850s, slave-owning families are the victims of emancipation. And they're victims both of the British government and of the enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, who won't do what they were expected to do. Okay? They haven't become the wage-laboring peasant, or wage-laboring force that they were destined to under the structure of British emancipation. So we've obviously published work on the middle decades of the 19th century from the first phase, and the work on compensation especially had, as, as some of you know, resonance for the reparations movement, obvious um, uh, resonance. You can't look at those lists of, of money passing to the slave owners without it triggering um, uh, some, um, as I say, relevance for reparations. In the second and current phase, we're looking back to the 18th century and the very early 19th century. Okay, so we're moving back in time. And just a handful of things to say about the British end of this before moving to the, to the Caribbean. The permeation of the slave ownership throughout England and Scotland is again striking to us. I say England to Scotland, England and Scotland advisedly. Uh, we've done little work on Ireland, um, although there is more to do on Ireland, and we've recorded the data as we've gone along, but we know too little about Ireland to position the slave owners within that. Um, and Wales appears to be a relatively... Um, apart from some areas in North Wales, Wales appears to be a relatively um, uh, um, thin area in terms of slave ownership. So England and Scotland have been the focus. And the permeation runs across the political spectrum. Edmund Burke is in there, but so is John Horne Took. Malthus is there, and so is uh, Nassau Williams Sr., Jane Austen's circle and slavery connections in Antigua are, are, are well known. I don't need to uh, rehearse those, um, uh, Said and others. But wherever you look in social and cultural circles in Britain in this period, you look at Byron, for example, the network around Byron, um, again, there must be two or three dozen people who are relatively close to, to Byron. Uh, Charles Lee, who was his uncle by marriage and later, in fact, became the father-in-law of Augusta Lee, Byron's half-sister, uh, Byron's cousin, Sir Peter Parker, his school friends, the man who was his runner in the Eaton Harrow cricket match, because obviously Byron wasn't particularly good between the wickets. Um, and Byron's house was bought by Thomas Wildman, um, again, a slave owner um, whose family had made money by exploiting, effectively, the Beckfords. They were smarter than the Beckfords in the late 18th century, and they took them to the cleaners in uh, Jamaica. Uh, and Lee Hunt, Byron's biographer and the man of letters. In many maybe not all, if not in all the cases that we're looking at, we're not discovering new information. Okay? I think we should be clear about that with you and with ourselves. What we're discovering or what we're doing is making explicit what has been known and not known. It's been disavowed. Okay? So people have, in the end, people who knew about Lee Hunt knew about this, um, and yet, in some respects, they didn't. In his own autobiography, Lee Hunt said... Towards the latter part of his life, my father's affairs were greatly received by the help of his sister, Mrs. Darrell, who came over with a property in Barbados. My aunt was generous. Part of her property came among us also by marriage, and my father's West Indian son was again warm upon him. 
on his sister's death to be sure his struggles recommenced, though nothing in comparison to what they had been. Okay, what's he talking about? He's talking about owning enslaved people in Barbados. Of course he is. That's what it is. Um, in his ODMB entry, um, not written by Hunt himself, of course, obviously, uh, it talks about Hunt's father, who was descended from Church of England ministers on Barbados. And again, you can see the glissade um, in the framing of that uh, to position Hunt relative to, uh, to slave ownership. With Nassau William Sr., whom I mentioned uh, briefly, the ODMB again says, he was the eldest of ten children of John Raven Sr., son of a merchant trading overseas, and his wife Mary, daughter of Henry Duke's Solicitor General Barbados. Okay, and again, that's true. But it's not the whole truth, of course. Uh, Nassau William Sr.'s father was a Church of England clergyman, uh, and owned himself enslaved people in Barbados, and his and uh, senior's grandfather owned two estates and held a mortgage on over uh, enslaved people in, in Barbados. And he himself, senior, married the daughter of an absentee slave owner, and we found him as a trustee for another female slave owner in Trinidad. So he's he's deeply embedded in these networks that, that existed. And um, this, the second phase of LBS is incredibly rich in that kind of anecdotal material. The challenge for us is the so what. So what? If you put all these things together, this quantity turns to, quali- to, turn to quality in some, some way. Um, and one of our theses was that slavery was more important to Britain in the middle uh, and late 18th century than it was in the 1830s. Okay, that was the, the hypothesis that we wanted to test. It fits with Williams and the notion of decline. Why else would there be abolition? But, at least so far, the evidence is not proving or is not sustaining that simple view or that preconception. Um, we have very few numerical indications yet, but the ones that we do have, and we've done work on um, Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton's projects. Okay? How many of those were commissioned by slave owners? Um, and the answer is 15 to 20% of those um, were commissioned by slave owners, slightly lower for Capability Brown than for Repton. <laughs> So we're capturing some slice of the British elites in the late um, 18th century, and that 15 to 20% is the same number that we, um, at, uh, that we propound for the uh, 19th century. Okay? If we're looking at dead, rich individuals in the 19th century, uh, using Bill Rubenstein's work and working with him to, to, in a way, fix his work and have it reflect slave ownership properly, which originally it did not do, then um, it's clear that between 1809 and 1875, as I say, 15 to 20% of the richest individuals dying in Britain had their money from either from slave ownership or they were the children of slave owners or they were in industries that were so closely aligned to slave ownership that we can say that that is slave money. Um, and particularly towards the latter end of the period, it's obviously cotton manufacturing, cotton broken uh, amongst those. Uh, recently, Trevor Bernard threw down a challenge on the Industrial Revolution. He said, uh, Penryn, the slate mines at Penryn, are the only example of industrial investment by Jamaican slave owners. And this, again, obviously picks up on, on, on Williams, Eric Williams. And looking at the top 20 slave-owning families in Jamaica in the 1760s, it's probably true. Uh, Trevor, I think, is right. But we need to look at the role of those 20 in agrarian improvement in Britain, in infrastructure, in banking and finance, in commerce, and we need to look at other colonies as well. It is possible, I think, that Jamaican slave owners have an unusual propensity to become uh, rentiers in Britain. And other, other areas of the Caribbean, particularly British Guiana, particularly Grenada, uh, Grenada and St. Vincent, have a different form of mercantile capital, which is much more active in Britain than, than is Jamaican capital. So overall, our project has been um, to make it impossible for historians of Britain 
to write of the 18th and early 19th centuries without engaging with slavery, even if that's to dismiss it and to dismiss our findings, we want that to be an explicit process, not up to us, of course, but we're trying to um, create a climate or create a framework in which if history is to be written of Britain in that period, the historian is under an obligation to say, and by the way, I put slavery to one side for the following reason, because otherwise it's simply disavowed in so many ways, as, as we've talked about. Okay. So, um, can our work support Caribbean history more directly than this overall, um, the importance of the Caribbean to Britain? Reflecting on this, there were two qualifications that uh, I felt that I should, should make uh, in this audience. The first is that LBS has always been explicitly about the enslavers. It's about slave owners, slave holders. And we've always known that we're looking at only one piece of the picture, and potentially you could argue that we're looking the wrong way through the telescope. Okay, we're looking through the telescope at historical actors who number tens of thousands over and against the hundreds of thousands of enslaved people uh, who are active in the same period. So that's triggered a consciousness of the opportunity and the responsibility to take those opportunities to recall information about the enslaved people as we found it along the way. But what we have and what we've embedded in the database at the moment is a byproduct of the research that we'd be doing and we'd be wrong to claim otherwise. So that's the first uh, caveat. And the second is that I don't think that the legacies approach that we've used, these six legacy strands, work in the Caribbean. What we're doing in, in the UK is reinscribing slavery onto all these things that we still value, enjoy, take uh, profit and pleasure from, and link those to slavery. Different, different context in the Caribbean, um, it seems to me. You may have a different view. And in the Caribbean, very often the legacies are actually absences rather than presences. Think about education institutions, for example. We trace lots of slave money into educational institutions in Britain. It's, it's harder to do that in the Caribbean, if I can put it that way. Um, and, of course, that's not inadvertent. So the, kind of the hunt for um, slavery connections in, in the Caribbean is, is of a different order. You can do it. You can look at businesses. The rum business in the Caribbean today is mostly owned by multinationals. Um, and, you, of course, you can trace the origins of those back into the, the slave period. Of course you can. Um, that's true of Appleton, it's true of, of uh, Mount Gay um, but as I say the ownership now sits uh, outside of their respective uh, uh, context so um, the relevance to Caribbeanists we know that there is um, relevance because there's already work underway in the Caribbean that draws on the LBS data uh, Ahmed Reed in Jamaica is just beginning a very um, significant, what will be I think a very significant uh, project in writing on effectively mapping um, res resident slave ownership and doing the same um, work on the individual slave owners that we've done for the absentees in Britain uh, in Jamaica. So, uh, as I say, he's at, at an early stage, but uh, it seems to me uh, he's committed. And we've provided him with all the data that we have in form that is slightly more helpful than him having to trawl through the database. Um, in another form, in a micro history, as, as Gad knows, uh, Selwyn Kudjo at Wellesley has just published a book, is publishing a book right now on uh, William Hard in Burnley, who was a slave owner in Trinidad, um, and he used our data to trace Burns' rise as a planter. That is a transgressive book, uh, by the way, at least it seems to me it's a transgressive book, um, a book by a descendant of the enslaved people about a, a, a white slave owner. Um, Andrea Stewart has, has done that, obviously, but in a, a, a different form than, than uh, is uh, uh, Selwyn's. And I think, unless I'm mistaken, that you might be inviting Selwyn to talk directly about his book here. Okay, so those two are using our material in different ways. One, um, 
where the material is central, the other where it, where it's not. Let's see this. But of the um, sub areas that I thought LBS might be directly helpful, um, then one is the movement of enslaved people within late slavery. The second is the creation of the free population of color in the British colonies. The third is the formation of a Creole, a white Creole elite and transnational slave ownership. The fourth is the structure of estate ownership. And the fifth is decline. Um, and I'm just going to run briefly through what I in, intend by each of those as we go through. The movement of enslaved people, um, because we've systematically filleted the slave registers, then we have uh, a complete framework, potentially, for exploring the movement of enslaved people within the colonies, uh, but also between the colonies in the period 1817 to 1834. As many of you know, this was a period of increasing restriction, of course, on the intercolonial slave trading, um, but the scale in the early period is, is uh, striking. I've been looking at Dominica, um, obviously a, a 1763 colony. Um, in Dominica, to date, we've found 227 named estates. And with that number, there are 24 estates, 10%, uh, where between 1817 and 1823, almost all the enslaved people were sold and moved to other colonies. Over 1,000 um, uh, move, were moved to Demerara, but they also go to Trinidad, they go to St. Vincent, they go to Grenada. So there's a double displacement, displacement of, of enslaved people um, from presumably some kind of, of settled um, existence in Dominica and then in a period of three years <coughs> lifted up and put down in new um, and uh, certainly in the case of Demerara, extraordinarily um, perilous uh, environments as the Demerara planters, the slave owners there, move from uh, from uh, cotton very rapidly into, into sugar, as uh, famously John Granson did. And it seemed to me, at least, that um, these force movements of people, this double displacement, must be part of the assessment or reassessment of amelioration. Um, amelioration, uh, as many of you know, the notion that slavery uh, improved for the enslaved people in the last 50 years or so. Um, and I had thought that discussion was over, but in fact, very recently, um, James Dawkins sent me a piece from the forthcoming Economic History Review by J.R. Ward. I'd also unfairly assume that J.R. Ward was probably dead a long time ago. But... <laughs> He's not. No, no, and that's it's unfair. That's a, that's a cheap, cheap comment. But the, the, the piece deals with estimates of height among Jamaica workhouse detainees. It's a very interesting piece, and it, it left me at least uh, in my kind of pious way. Uh, queasy because the elaborate statistical framework that's being built on the bodies of enslaved people um, is reminiscent of the early 1970s, the clear metric movement in, in the US. So there's a, there's a, there's a some, and it treats this unproblematically. That's, that's perhaps the issue. Um, in passing, it also likens um, what Ward calls confidentials. In other words, the enslaved people who acted as drivers and overseers on the estates. He likens them to capos in Nazi concentration camps without following through to the other half of that comparison and what that could or where that comparison should take you if you start, you need to finish what that comparison actually means. Anyway, but the conclusion, um, and it's an important conclusion, is that he uh, traces an increase in the height of Jamaica workforce detonee, uh, uh, workhouse detainees over the last 50 years of slavery um, and demonstrates, um, to his satisfaction, the statistically significant increase in, in the average height uh, the median height of those detainees and then uses that obviously as, as uh, evidence for uh, improved conditions um, presumably improved diet uh, but his conclusion is that the British from this 
The British West Indies slave regime improved substantially during its later years, and it improved because of planter policy. Uh, and as I say, I think that, you know, in part, some of the work that, that we're doing on these forced movements of people might um, at least begin be relevant to that debate about amelioration, if that debate about amelioration is going to be reopened by this article, as I think, I think it might be, and perhaps as it should be. The second um, area where we've got um, huge volumes of undigested um, material, anecdotal material, uh, is that we've now read and recorded the gist of thousands of wills of slave owners. And part of that um, recording is of manumissions and the provision for natural reputed children. And so this is the second box uh, of, of uh, things that I think that the database offers. It's about the creation of a free population of colour in the British colonies over an extended period. And again, we know that we're capturing and recording these enslaved people only at the moment of their transmission. Okay, and that transmission is being done by the decisions of the, the owners of, of the enslaved people. So, again, we understand that the, the, what we purport to be a kind of progressive project um, is based on sources that are raced as well as gendered in this very fundamental way. And yet these fragments of lives that are captured in the owners' wills, the fragments of the enslaved people's lives as they move into freedom, um, is one limited form of recovery that might be compromised or elided by the source, but nevertheless it is, it is there as uh, the re-entry in some cases into the historical record of hundreds of, of children of colour in Britain, thousands of reputed or natural children in, in the colonies, uh, together with the details of manumission and then testamentary provision. Does the slave owner actually leave money to, the, the, uh, to reputed or natural children? How does he treat inside and outside families? Again, there's the huge volumes now of, of data, not perhaps in the most useful form uh, for researchers, but it is there. As we assemble um, data on the slave owners, then we're deepening, obviously, the um, knowledge about the formation of Creole elites, uh, white Creole elites, and the overlay of British financial and human capital on the existing slave-owning societies of other European powers. So particularly in 1763, but also in the early 1800s, we can see the movement of, of British people, merchants, and then, uh, and then in turn uh, slave owners and, and settlers, into colonies that are already established. And then we can see the evidence of the intermarriage that takes place between um, Anglo-French elites, Anglo-Dutch, Anglo-Spanish, and the development of a transcolonial and transnational uh, slave-owning uh, elite in the Caribbean within the structures of the European uh, national colonial systems. Uh, so there are a class of West Indians who are visible who are absentee owners in the Caribbean itself okay, because they're, they're sitting in Barbados owning enslaved people in Demerara. Um, and that class in aggregate appears to us to be um, a significant number of people. Um, we can debate this how you measure significance, of course. And that ownership, that transnational ownership, survived British emancipation and been struck very recently doing some work in conjunction with colleagues in the Netherlands on the British slave owners who still own enslaved people in Suriname in the early 1860s when the Dutch uh, emancipate uh, the enslaved people and pay compensation. And all over again, suddenly, there are uh, several dozen British slave owners turning up in Suriname who have been breaking the British law. And there's no question that they've been breaking British law. And there is, in fact, one case where the British government appears to shape up to prosecute uh, a woman living in Britain, and then they back off and say, actually, all the witnesses are in, in the Caribbean. How could we, how could we do this? Um, so uh, we've also found, by the way, amongst the Surinamese slave owners, 
the wife of Samuel Jackman Prescott, national hero of Barbados, uh, his wife, Catherine Rose Cruden, who was the daughter of, of, an, of a free woman of color, uh, I believe, and a, a white slave owner in Barbados, uh, owned through uh, heritage, her inheritance from her father, uh, enslaved people in Suriname. Uh, the structure of state ownership, which is seeking to demonstrate or to document and create continuous histories for each estate, um, we often have discontinuous but extensive histories as a result of, of our efforts. Um, but we can throw, I think, light on a whole series of questions about the structure of estate ownership. The consolidation of estates, the rate of expansion, the rate of development of absenteeism, um, the explosion of speculative capital that I mentioned into the neutral and seeded islands, the shift from, uh, of crops, particularly the cotton and sugar transition, the turnover of estates, how often are they being uh, sold, bought and sold. Obviously, there's been some very good work done by Ahmed Reed and um, uh, David Beck Ryden, for example, on, on a limited um, sample in, in, in Jamaica and Kingston, or around Kingston. And also the long-running families, not only the famous families in Britain, the Lazels uh, or the Beckfords, but um, there are obscure dynasties who exist in the British provinces who own estates in the Caribbean for 150 years. It just goes on and on. Uh, there are the Fosters in Bedford, the Dickinson family in the southwest. And as you dig into them, then you realize there are dozens of members of these families. And, of course, they do significant things on local terms, even if not national terms. And all of it is fed from the same underlying uh, ownership uh, in the Caribbean. Finally, I think that um, there are continuities of ownership post-emancipation that are uh, that drop out of our work and that are important. And I'm thinking here in, in terms of Walter Rodney particularly, his interest in editing material on planters and on estate ownership uh, in, in Guyana in the 1880s, which then framed, of course, his history of the uh, Guyanese working people. Um, but he, he, he was very interested in understanding, of course, the material base that he was describing and used uh, the material. And uh, again, we, we can see uh, all the way through the 19th century, uh, former slave owners continuing as estate owners. There's a, swift, there's a switch east, as I mentioned, the swing east to the uh, white settler colonies, but there are other families who double down and they recommit, and they're still there in the, in the 1890s, the 1910s, uh, and in some cases in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And finally, I think uh, decline, uh, again, obviously, uh, an Eric Williams concept. As Christopher Leslie Brown said 10 years ago, it's as much an ideological as it is a technical concept, uh, but I don't think we can make sense of the abolition of slavery without confronting the complexity and specificity of decline. What does that mean? It embraces lots of different things for different people, and one of the reasons for the controversy, controversies around it, has been that people have been talking about different things at different cross-purposes. And again, because of the work that we've done on wills, we had the raw material to look more systematically at slave owners and their expectations. Because in their wills, as I mentioned, they're leaving annuities, annual payments secured on the enslaved people in the estates, and those annuities reflect the expectations of the slave owner about the profitability of the slave economy in which, they, which they're exploiting. And so they leave um, 500 pounds per year to their wife, or they leave 300 pounds a year to a, a daughter. Um, and because we have a large enough sample now, we can then map when those expectations change. And it seems to us clear that in the 1770s, for example, in St. Kitts, is the peak in which, uh, in some cases, Mostly women are being left £1,000 a year, for example, from saying huge, huge sums of money. By the 1790s, that, that's finished in, in St. Kitts. In Jamaica, there's a dip, 
and then it rises again in the 1790s, and then bang, in the, between 1805 and 1807, there is a very, very significant collapse of confidence by the planters. Again, the, you have to relate that, I think, as David Beck Ryden does, to the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, the posture of the slave owners towards uh, the abolition of the slave trade. So uh, we can see the shadow of decline, in other words, fall using this measure across the Caribbean. Um, I want to close, as I should, um, by just highlighting some future directions. Uh, As I said, next year we need to take stock of what we have and begin to put some framework, some structure into this endless data uh, gathering that otherwise is going to yield diminishing returns. We know that. Um, It becomes of antiquarian interest in the end rather than than helping understand slavery or abolition or Britain or perhaps even the Caribbean. So uh, there are two new projects that uh, are at a stage that are mentionable now. One is on the enslaved people themselves. And as I said at the outset, we've always been clear that our project is about the enslavers and that that has costs, right? We're putting resources into reimagining, recovering the history of the enslavers and not of the enslaved people. Um, But we hope that with the, in partnership with, oddly enough, the Mormons, we will be able to do a new transcription of the slave registers, take it out of ancestry where it currently is, where the registers are both incomplete and very, very badly indexed and very hard to use, and link them then to the knowledge and data we have on estate ownership. And if we can do that, then we'll provide a tool to people that will give much more of a shot of being able to recover um, family histories uh, because the, for the first time, the enslaved people will be um, more transparent. Again, of course, under their names in captivity. Again, we understand the limitations. But that, at least, potentially would be an important contribution, I think, if we can do what we've tried to do for a long time, which is to link the slave registers in an orderly way with the data we have on, slave, uh, on estate ownership. And the second is a project that uh, is subject to funding, but will do for British slave traders what we've done hitherto for British slave owners okay? so the universities overlap but to a limited degree um, so there are again we know thousands of individuals in Britain who uh, were slave traders some of those were minor investors uh, at least in our terms they were minor investors they may have invested in one or two voyages others were very very substantial so of course it's a huge spectrum just as slave ownership is a huge spectrum um, but the intention is to uh, document and record all the known British slave traders and then look at, again, in the same dimensions, what their legacies were in Britain because that's been a missing part uh, of, of what we've been doing on slave ownership. Uh, one of the, you might argue, a number of missing parts. Um, as part of the corollary of that, um, the National Gallery is very interested. Their 200th anniversary, the bicentenary is coming up. They're very interested in John Julius Angustine who, uh, whose collection forms the, formed the uh, cornerstone of the original National Gallery. Uh, that's the collection on which it was built. He didn't give that collection. It was bought from his executors uh, by, the, by the nation. Uh, but it nevertheless is, is a very significant thing. And it's always been said of uh, Angustine that he was a slave owner and that he was a slave trader. And if you look at any kind of public history source, those are the things. Uh, and the National Gallery has said to itself, as it should have done some time ago, I think, we need to understand this what is the evidence for both of those things. And so, uh, as I say, in partnership with the National Gallery, we'd like to do the work to work out what Angustine's connections were. With slave ownership, a relatively, I think, clear uh, already. We know 
perhaps almost enough about those. Uh, he was a trustee of a, a slave estate in Grenada, and his wife, his second wife, owned enslaved people, and the couple sold those enslaved people after uh, their marriage. But as a slave trade, or as an insurer of the slave trade, because Angustine made his money in uh, marine insurance, Lloyd's, and the connections, that nexus has never been uh, properly explored. There's been good work done on it, but again, systematically, we, nobody has ever looked at Lloyd's of London as and the slave trade, how important was the business. So um, more um, prospectively down the road, uh, logically there would be a third phase of slave owners, slave owner research that would go all the way back to the 1620s that would, if you like, finish the picture. So it would run from 1620 to 1763 for the old colonies, Jamaica, Barbados, the Leewoods. Um, uh, and again, logically, we would look at the American colonial slave owners. The moment we don't touch the American colonies, they are part of this picture, obviously, until 1776, although what kind of part they are um, is not, I think, entirely clear. But those decisions as to where we go uh, in 2020 and beyond uh, will be up to my successor, a new director. Uh, we have to make an appointment next year of uh, somebody who will take this on and, and uh, move it forward. Thank you. Thank you.